turning there, let me remind you, you know, if you've, we've got some first-time visitors and out-of-town visitors, it's nice to have you, but let me remind you that it's kind of intimidating to visit a church this size the first time, because if you go to a larger church, you kind of sense you've got some anonymity, but in a church this size, you get the impression everybody's looking at you and aware of you, and I I don't think we're monitoring every little facial expression everybody does, although I'm I'm checking yours, you know. Uh, It's kind of nice to be able to open the doors of the the church, yeah, and allow first-time visitors or people trying to figure out what we are uh, and access into what we're doing. And our website is designed to do that, and we've had some updating and some uh, refining of the website of light, if I can get it. Hmm. Work perfect at practice today, but uh, if we don't get to s- see it right now, it's okay. If I can spell tbfduncan, tbfduncan.org. Uh, for some reason, I've lost internet access up here for some reason. But let me just encourage you to check that out and also uh, to tell people you're thinking might want to come visit the church for whatever reason. We're not trying to steal anybody who's plugged in and happy in another a good local church, but a lot of people for what various reasons get out of the habit, they're new in town or whatever. So uh, tbfduncan.org is going to uh, try harder to be up-to-date, uh, accessible, uh, so that if you're wondering when the fellowship dinner is, you can check uh, for this month, you can check those kind of things, those kind of details. So just be aware of that, and uh, let's access that as much as possible. All right, uh, let me read our passage this morning. We continue a study of the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse is a passage in John. It's John chapters 13 through 17, and it's the teaching Jesus gave his 11 believing disciples, Judas wasn't a believer, he's left the room, and he tells them how they as believers and we as believers can and should fellowship with a physically absent Savior because he gives them this teaching the evening before the crucifixion. And then three days later, Dennis, we have the resurrection. And 40 days after the resurrection, we have the ascension. And from that point on, Eric... And Peter, James, and John are called to fellowship with Jesus, even though he's not physically walking around on the earth anymore. And that was especially poignant for these 11 guys because they had physically walked around with him for three years. So how do you spiritually fellowship with a physically absent Savior? The principles of fellowship, our passage today calls it friendship with Christ, are found in the Upper Room Discourse. And we're in the very center of this incredible teaching content as we finish this first part of chapter 15 today. Look at verses 12 through 17. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. The Lord Jesus saying, teaching his 11 believing apostles, you can plug your name in the blank here if you're a believer. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you agape one another, that you seek others' highest good and you free yourself up to serve them that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love 
has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, or that she laid down her life for her friends. And you are my friends in the fullest, most intimate, uh, substantial way if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you just servants, for the servant doesn't necessarily know what his master's doing, doesn't know the big plan, the big picture. But I've called you my friends for all things I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. Everything you need to know to be what God wants us to be, he's given us. You did not choose me, 11 apostles, for apostolic service, but I chose you and appointed you, and that's all y'all in the Greeks, so that's the plural, that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And part of the fruit of the apostolic testimony would be the 90 churches in Duncan, Oklahoma, including the one on this corner, right? That's an expression of that. Uh, so that your fruit would remain and that whatever you ask of the Father so you can bear fruit, in my name he give you. This I command you, that you love one another. Now one of the biggest hits that the rock and roll band a long time ago called the Beatles ever had was All You Need Is Love. And we could almost use that song title as a paraphrase for our passage this morning except for one thing. The Beatles and the Bible are using the term love in two radically different ways. The Beatles are singing about love as warm emotional feelings up to and including romantic feelings. The Bible in John 15 and hundreds of other passages commands us to love God and other people, but it's not calling on an emotion. It's calling on a determination to seek God's highest glory and other people's greatest good consistent with God's highest glory. That's the kind of love we're going to talk about this morning as we continue our study of the Upper Room Discourse. But first, let's pray for, uh, as we always do, for teachability, for our troops, um, for the persecuted church. And here's what Eric and Aubrey didn't tell you, but it's out on the prayer chain. Uh, as, as excited as we are that uh, God's blessing them with a third baby, and we're all hoping for a, a boy. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, but Gray's having some uh, uh, scary symptoms that are being checked out even as we speak and we're waiting test results and stuff like that. So let's pray for their oldest uh, uh, child, Gray, Graylin, and to remember her. And I didn't, find, I didn't see that until it's too late to put in the bulletin, but she's going to go right in the first of the bulletin until we get this resolved. So uh, Dale, if you would, pray in those directions for us, would you?
Hey, by the way, uh, this collage of military people we know and love is, is going to be changed from time to time. I put a couple different pictures in it. Um, we've got uh, David Moore, Sergeant David Moore, who lives at Fort Sill and, and uh, is an important part of our church we, and, and just came back from Afghanistan in May. Uh, Matt Sanford, uh, very near and dear to our heart, also came back from Afghanistan in May. This is Scott Austin, who's a helicopter pilot for the Coast Guard. This is Sam Stribling, David's son. This is John Christian. The Army said they were going to send him to Germany. They're now in Belgium. Uh, somebody misread, they thought, they misread the orders or something, but they're in Belgium. Uh, tell them I'm busy. I can't tell you that right now, but... Uh, uh, yeah, they've just been deployed to Europe for probably two or four or more years uh, and getting used to all that. This is Cade Fleming, a uh, veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. And this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Keith Donnell, who is Michael's brother-in-law. And uh, he, 101st Infantry, is that right? 101st Airborne, yeah. He's in, a very famous and distinguished uh, group of people. Uh, He's fighting Ebola in Africa because somebody thought it was a good idea to send soldiers over there to fight Ebola. So that's just me. But uh, yeah, so I want you to know who we're praying for. And I, I hope you pray for our military often on a daily basis would be ideal. Uh, today we're going to look at verses 12 through 17, which talks about the joy of fellowship with Christ and other Christians. And basically saying that Janice Skinner is to abide in Christ so that among other things she can enjoy a growing, more dynamic overlap with Christ, a fellowship, friendship with Christ himself, and that will free her up to have closer uh, connections with other Christians in his name. So it's really a cool thing we're looking at. Now, what do you know about the Upper Room Discourse at this stage? Well, uh, we're in the very heart of it. The Upper Room Discourse has three parts. First part, Jesus gives us the pattern for fellowship, which is not about you supervising everybody else or me telling everybody else what to do. It's about serving other people superlatively, uh, willingly. What was the pattern for fellowship? Jesus giving a lecture, Jesus washing their feet. Then we have principles for fellowship. And the one word key, and the Lord talks about all kinds of different metaphors on this, but ultimately the one word key you need to, you need to key on is abiding in Christ. Watch this. The Gospel of John emphasizes two verbs, pistuo and meno, believing and abiding. The sinner receives as a gift eternal life when he or she believes in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is active, receptive trust. It's recognizing and responding from the heart to the one who can save you because he died for your sins and rose again. That's believing in Christ. But what's a believer supposed to do? Because when you come to faith in Christ, God doesn't just pull you right up to heaven. He leaves you here for a while to be and to do things, right? That's where abiding in Christ comes in. Abiding in Christ is the believer. Savannah Bowers, uh, Danny Pollock, Brad McCoy, recognizing and responding not to a bunch of rules, but from the heart to a ruler who's first our Savior so that, of course, we obey the rules, but we do it because we're motivated out of love, respect, reverence, gratitude to the one who's given us the gift of eternal life. And the Lord really emphasizes that in this section, the middle section of the Upper, upper Discourse. Then the third and final section is not pattern principles, but what is it? 
it's prayer. And in chapter 17 of John, you, you're, you're able to, to sit on his shoulder and listen to Jesus pray just before he's going to get arrested. And it's amazing what he prays about. Uh, and include, and in fact, he includes everybody in this room who's a believer in that prayer. We'll show you explicitly how that works. Now, we're in the middle of the middle part of the Upper Room Discourse right now. And I say that because of the literary structure. Now, three of you engineers out there love stuff like this. Most of you aren't that interested. And I'll be done in 20 seconds talking about the macrochiastic literary structure of the Upper Room Discourse. But yeah, the Lord structured his thoughts, as ancients often did, even though modern analytical Americans don't look for chiasm. We look for one, two, three, four, five, six, final thing, most important thing, let's quit. The ancients would often move toward and away from the most important thing with an inverted parallelism. He talks, predicts Peter's denial at the very first, predicts the disciples' denial at the very last, promises heavenly provision, promises heavenly promotion, promise of the Holy Spirit, promise of the Holy Spirit, first thing, second thing, third thing, last thing, second to last thing, third to last thing. Dangers of the world, dangers of the world, puts the most important thing in the center. And that's the passage we're looking at right now. We've spent our last three teaching sessions in verses 1 through 17. So when you do a PowerPoint, you make stuff spin if it's important. That's just me. But yeah, that section we just looked at there in the yellow breaks down like this. Believers, Steve Skinner is to abide in Christ so that among other things he can produce real spiritual fruit and avoid spiritual mediocrity. He's supposed to abide in Christ to fully experience spiritual reality and so he can forge a substantial growing relationship, fellowship, friendship with Christ and with other Christians. It's a great thing. So let's look at verses 12 through 17 today. And I want you to notice the structure of this passage. It's very important. The very core of the passage is found not in the first verse of this sub-passage, verse 12, but it's found in the middle of it, verses 14 through 16, where he's talking about the importance that Clay as a believer or Ron as a believer are forging a deeper, more intimate fellowship, friendship with Christ day by day as we abide in Christ and walk with Him. That's the core of this passage. And then that core is surrounded by affirmations about the importance of fellowshipping with other Christians, especially in the local church. Now, I like circles like that, but I know the way you think, and I know most of you prefer diagrams like this one. And therefore, I'm going to suggest to you, it's as if the Lord puts a top bun and a bottom bun, and then the meat in the middle. So I'm going to suggest we look at not the top bun or the bottom bun first. Let's, and I know I'm distracting you because now you're all thinking about lunch. This is a test. It's only a test. Uh, yeah, we're going to look at the meat in the middle, and then we're going to look at the top and the bottom bun. So let's look at the meat in the middle. Let, let me read that again, verses 14 through uh, 16. Jesus says, You are my friends in the fullest possible sense of that word, if and as you have a substantial overlap with me. You abide in me so you obey what I'm telling you to do. You're my friends if and as you do what I command you. And I'm no longer going to see you just as servants or uh, helpers, for the servants don't necessarily get advised of the big picture. In the military, the generals don't necessarily sit down with the privates and say, 
hey, we'd like to have an invasion next week. We'd like you to take part in that and let us show you how that invasion, that little piece of that beach is going to fit into the entirety of the World War II project. Eisenhower didn't meet with a lot of troops right before they went for motivation. He didn't try to teach them the whole grand scheme. You know, you just kind of do what you're told and assume that the higher-ups know what they're doing, and sometimes they do, right? Uh, but in this case, the higher-up always knows. So I realize that servants don't necessarily get briefed on all the aspects. I have briefed you guys on what you need to know, more than you need to know, so you can trust me, even though sometimes you're going to be tempted to doubt, pout, and drop out of the spiritual race because you're never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, but boy, it's going to be tempting sometimes, isn't it? So no longer am I going to call you friends as you have an abiding, deepening, more and more substantial connection with me. You're going to be able to have wisdom to see how some of the dots are connected, and I've given you what you need so you can do that. Now, I think talking very specifically to them as apostles, foundational men in the church, church capital C, 2,000-year-old plus church, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, Peter, James, and John, Simon, the Zealot, all those guys, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, build the foundation of the church, write the New Testament, and that your fruit would ma- remain. You got a New Testament in your hand? That's part of the apostolic production, right? And part of the fulfillment of that. So that, and this isn't uh, a blank check, whatever you want, you want, want a pink Cadillac tomorrow, it's going to show up in your driveway. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name so you can bear the kind of fruit I want you to bear, he's going to give it to you. God will always give you not everything you want. God will not give you everything you think you need, but he's always going to give every believer everything we need so we can be or become in our character everything he wants us to be. And it's always going to be there. So if we're not where we need to be spiritually, it's not his fault. Right? So it's not the coach's fault. The coach never teaches them to fumble uh, throw interceptions. You don't have any drills. Let's practice our interception technique. You know, you, you don't teach the quarterbacks to throw interceptions. Uh, it's not usually the coach's fault, right? All right, look at verse 14. Jesus says, you are my friends if and as you do what I command you. What, what is friendship all about? Really, when you think about it, friendship is all about some kind of relational overlap between people. And the more time and focus you spend developing that overlap, it gets bigger and the friendship gets more and more substantial. Uh, This is why there's a big difference, and Christians need to understand this, there's a huge difference between clumps and cliques, okay? Um, Let me tell you the difference, Eric. Clumps are benign and they happen because we're human. If you have a, a seminar in town where people, Christians from 10 different churches or 50 different churches show up for this seminar, anytime you have a break, people are going to clump. People who don't already know each other are going to clump. The young mothers are going to tend to clump around the coffee pot, right? And, swear war, uh, and swap war stories, right? Uh, the grandparents with little kids are going to tend to, to clump. The OU fans are going to tend to clump because of Nancy will be over there somewhere, right? Uh, the OSU fans will, will bring our Kleenexes, we'll sympathize with each other, and we'll tend to clump. So, uh, when you see that happen, you shouldn't be surprised by that. I think that's a clump. That's natural. I would say be aware of your tendency there, enjoy that, but reach out of your clump because the local church especially is designed to be a place where Brant can become a bud not only with Colin and uh, with uh, Emma, 
but even with old geezers like Pastor Brad, you know, because you've got to break out of your clump. Now, cliques, I think, are malicious, and it's intentional. And it might start with a clump. I mean, old people like me and younger people like Gene, yeah, watch, and, and, and uh, Doug might get together and talk about mutual interest, and then we might talk about the fact we just love uh, the book of Ecclesiastes or love Genesis and say, you know what, I don't think David Demerson loves the book of Ecclesiastes as much as we do. Man, that's terrible. Man, he has really messed up spiritually. Let's pray that God will get through to him because he is just so messed up. Clicks are when you get together and convince yourself you're better than everybody else, or everybody else is inferior to you, or both. And that's not a good thing. You've got to watch out for that. But the point is, friendships start and are built on some kind of overlap. How do, how do we have a, a growing fellowship, friendship with Jesus as believers? I think we've got to have His priorities. We've got to be centered on Him, right? We've got to have a pie chart in our life that doesn't have a slice for Jesus but puts him at the center of the pie chart, and all the slices come out of that, right? And that's the way we see life. And as we think increasingly in his categories, where are we going to get his categories? People Magazine? Probably Oprah? This is probably a better source, right? As we get his priorities and focus on his person over time, with the ups and the downs and the painful parts and the pleasurable parts of life, you forge a deeper and deeper fellowship, friendship, connection with him because of substantial overlap. And he's promising that. So to me, it's pretty cool to realize the spiritual life isn't static, okay? Uh, We live in a culture that kind of worships youth. And so if you get older, like some of us are, right, uh, you realize that, man, the the culture kind of puts you in a separate category. Because they used to say, don't trust anybody over 30 when you get to be 61, nobody trusts you anymore, you know, especially on Cameron, you know. I'm an old geezer. But, yeah, as you get older as a Christian, you have more and more opportunity to have experience that you interpret through the grid of faith to walk with Christ in the ups and downs. This is why when you get married, uh, they say, do you promise, uh, you know, to live with each other in uh, prosperity and adversity? Remember that it was in there somewhere? Uh, in sickness and in health, as long as you both shall live. So she's going to get this 20-year-old chick I married 41 years ago is going to get to be 61. I mean, she looks like a she looks like a 51-year-old woman, you know. But I married a 20-year-old. What happened? <laughs> I mean, I didn't change, you know. So, uh, but you know, you I think a good marriage will say, yeah, we've got more overlap now, way more overlap we have now, wouldn't you say? But you guys and you did. It's like. Why did we even get married? We were just morons at the time. That's the way I tend to think. You know, I, I was just too young to get married. You need, hey, by the way, youth group, don't get married until you're at least like 47. I'm just telling you. I got married at 20, but I, got, I made a really good selection of who my spouse is going to be. This is what Jesus is promising us, and it's really exciting to realize you don't just, boom, get saved and sit around and wait for the rapture or something. We're supposed to have a dynamic walk with Him, not focusing on rules, If you focus on rules, you're going to become a self-righteous jerk because either you're going to obey the rules better you think than other people and so you're going to look down your nose at those people or you're going to break those rules so consistently you're going to have a very bad uh, conception of the whole thing and you may just decide to kind of get on the sidelines. We don't focus on the rules. We focus on a relationship with a ruler who's first our Savior. So guess what, Carol? We're doing the right things for the right reasons and we don't notice how great we are because who are we focusing on? 
how great somebody else is. And that's the way it's supposed to work. But sometimes we preachers who are desperately have you jump through hoops so we can convince ourselves we're doing something, force you to do stuff that you're doing for the wrong reasons. And it doesn't really work, but it impresses people because you have a crowd and people are jumping through hoops. Okay? And also, if you get dancing elephants at churches nowadays, you can draw a crowd. But uh, I think we ought to focus on Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism, world missions, and see what happens. That's, that's my plan. But I'm not rich or famous, so I don't go by that. Verse 15. So since you're my friends and growing in, in friendship, I'm going to increasingly disclose myself, and you're going to be able to connect the dots in my word and have more wisdom as you walk through that process. I remember sitting in a, a class at Dallas Seminary when I was a senior uh, with us, uh, next door was Gary DeSalvo, who does now pastor kind of a mega church in Temple, Texas. So it didn't rub off on me, but uh, we like softball and we like minor prophets. And we took this uh, kind of senior level seminar on uh, minor prophets with J. Dwight Pentecost. And he, Dr. Pentecost would walk in there each class, throw his Bible down, open it up to Hosea or Obadiah or, you know, Zechariah, whatever it was, and minor means smaller, not less important, and with no notes, would just walk through the text and connect all these prophecies and all this stuff with everything else in the Bible, and Gary and I would just look at each other and say, will we ever be able to do that? I mean, try, you try to write it all down, uh, and you say, will we ever be able to do that? And you know what? 30 years later, I can do some of that. I can do some of that. Not, not, like, Dr., not, not like Dr. P., but uh, and I think Gary would say the same thing. So you do get to increasingly know the Word, know the Lord, and you, you have you, situations where you have to make tough decisions, where you have to say no to stuff that somebody else would go for in a minute, but it's just not the right timing, and you're not supposed to make a change. And you, you make those decisions, you go, yeah, that's, that's okay. You know, the Lord is with me. It doesn't matter. Uh, he says, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. He's talking to them as apostles, but here's the thing. We think that's nice he chose them, and we know there's chooses, choices God makes and this and that. And it's very important. But in the ancient first century Jewish culture, you had traveling rabbis, but rabbis didn't say, hey, that Scott's got a nice-looking beard, really nice-looking wife. I think I'd like him to be my disciple. Rabbis didn't recruit disciples. People who thought they might want to be a disciple of the rabbi, like Michael. Hey, you've got a nice beard too and a nice looking wife. So hey, isn't that amazing? Uh, it just, maybe I, you know, remember the little girl who wrote Lincoln, you know, my mommy said if you grow a beard, she'd vote for you. So the rest is history, you know, 16th president. But yeah, you know, um, and what was I talking about? You, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, in the first century, rabbis didn't choose disciples. Disciples saw a rabbi they thought would have something that, uh, that they could benefit from, and they would ask if they could be a disciple. And Jesus is saying, you know, I didn't do the way the culture does it. I, I didn't wait for you to come to me. I, I chose you, and you can do what I want you to do, and I'm leaving you with a pretty big mission, but you keep in prayer and keep abiding in me, and it will work out. It, it's fine. So that's the core of the passage, you know, if you look at it. And, you know, he's talking to believers here, and um, he's saying, as you walk with me, you can have an increasingly dynamic, intimate connection with me, and you'll bear the fruit I want you to bear. 
Uh, but watch this. Christianity is not about what we do for Jesus. It's about what Jesus has, is doing, and will do for us. And that's where the gospel comes in. And, you know, the Bible, as Homer read so well, I love this passage. Let's look at Romans. Uh, Romans look at John 3. You know, John 3.16 is the verse kind of most Americans probably know if they know a Bible verse. If they don't know that one, they'll know Jesus wept, which is the shortest one in the English Bible, so a lot of people know that one. But easy to memorize. Uh, what is this about Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness? Well, in Numbers 21, they were whining and complaining, the Exodus generation, and snakes came and were biting them and causing great pain and death. And then they went to Moses and said, fix it. And Moses prays, and God says, put a brass serpent on a pole and lift it up, and everybody who looks at the serpent will be healed of the snake bite. The look of faith at the one on the pole brings salvation, in this case of physical pain and death from snake bite. But ultimately, that's a symbol for something much greater. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, Jesus is saying this before the crucifixion early in his ministry, be lifted up on the cross so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God the Father loved the world of sinful people like you and me that he gave his monogenes doesn't mean begotten, it means unique, only one of its kind, uh, son, the second person of the Trinity who took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, that whoever, the Greek text says, all of the ones who believe in him shall not future tense perish second death like a fire, but have present tense, present abiding possession, eternal spiritual life. For God did not send the Son in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And the Bible teaches us very clearly that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because he died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. But he's not dead anymore. He bore our sins on the cross. Everything that could keep uh, David Bearden or Homer Cox or, more importantly, Brad McCoy out of heaven, the Lord Jesus died for on the cross. But he's not dead anymore. Uh, several years ago when our son Jonathan was in Thailand with Campus Crusade, we spent Easter morning in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and we went to a Buddhist pagoda on a tour, and they proudly told us that part of the Buddha's collarbone was in that pagoda. And I thought, that's pretty ironic, because I'm a Christian on Easter Sunday, and I've, and I've been to the tomb in Jerusalem, and it's still empty. There ain't no collarbones, Okay. We believe in a literal, supernatural, bodily, can't reproduce this in the laboratory kind of resurrection. And like I like to say, a dead Savior, Buddha would be one example, can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven, but the risen Savior is the only one who can. That's rapidly becoming hate speech. Jesus is the only one who can get you to heaven? Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you really mean that? Yeah. We really mean that. Uh, how, how dare you come up with that? Well, actually, we got it from him who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we say that lovingly, praise to him, not about anything in us, but that's becoming very offensive to people. But that's where it starts, right? Now, by the way, let me emphasize something. The, the guys that Jesus is teaching this to directly, the apostles, were, were called to be his disciples by him. He didn't wait for them to come to him. But they were believers 
before they became disciples. And I can show you that. Look at John chapter 1. Um, discipleship is the natural outflow of salvation, but it's not the terms of receiving salvation. Uh, the latter part of John chapter 1, people tend to blow through this real quick or not read it. I just love it. And you got Peter, James, and John uh, interacting with Jesus here. Uh, and I want you to notice, and there's some confusion. The confusion is this. this Savannah, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And so when you look at verse 35 and you read, again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. If you're in the Gospel of John and you read in the first chapter of John, the next day John was standing with his disciples what John are you talking about? You'd assume it's the same guy who wrote the gospel, but it's not. This is John the Baptist, and John wasn't a Baptist. He was a Jew, but he's a baptizing Jew, okay? So again, the next day, we're talking about several days in the life of Christ, early in the ministry, John the baptizing Jew was standing with two of his disciples. John was like an uh, advanced man for the Lord Jesus, Malachi chapter 3. He'd be a prophet who would preach the need of salvation attract disciples, and then point them to Jesus. And so this is in the, where they're just handing the baton to each other. Again, the next day, John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, that's the Lamb of God. That's the Messiah right there. The two disciples heard him speak, heard John say that, and they literally walked after Jesus physically. And Jesus turned, and, and when he saw them, he said, what are you guys looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? We want to sit down and chat. And he said, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying temporarily. And we don't know, maybe a hotel, maybe a lean-to, whatever. This is in, in Judah. He lives in Galilee. He's just there for some other things uh, temporarily. And they stayed with him. One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and say that was the Lamb of God, Jesus was, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So the first thing Andrew does after he, and I think it's the writer of the Gospel of John who's the second guy here, but we're not told that. After Andrew and his friend spends the afternoon with Jesus and they're convinced he's the Messiah and they've come to faith in him, what's the first thing Andrew does? Take a nap? No. He goes and finds his brother and they're listening to John the Baptist because they want to know who the Messiah is. And Andrew said to Peter, look what Andrew says, we have found Messiah. Yeshua HaMashiach is right there. He's the Messiah, the Lamb of God, which translated means the Christ or the Savior. He, Andrew, brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. Simon in Hebrew or Aramaic means listener. And that was Peter's name. But the problem was Peter wasn't a good listener. Peter talked too much. So the Lord says, with a smile on his face and a song in his heart, and you're going to get to see the video of this when you go to heaven with a big smile on his face. They call, you, they call you listener, don't they? You know what? We're going to change your name to Rocky because you're rough around the edges. But you're with me now, bud. You're with me. Okay? So all this has happened. Next day, we get Philip and uh, Nathaniel joined. But the point is, John the Baptist is doing his thing toward the end of John's ministry, handing the baton to Jesus, funneling his disciples to, uh, to Jesus, Right? Now look at Mark chapter 1, with John chapter 1 resonating in our heads. Watch what we read about in uh, John chapter 1. 
or Mark chapter 1, excuse me. Look at verse 14. Uh, Mark has a different purposes for his gospel. He kind of shortens the very first part of it, uh, fast forwards to the important stuff from his literary point of view. But look at uh, Mark 1, 14. Now, after John the Baptist had been taken into custody, what does that mean? He's no longer out ministering, and he doesn't get released. He gets his head removed, okay? Now, after John the Baptist had been taken into custody, which means we're talking about something that takes place after the episode in chapter 1 of John we just talked about, where John the Baptist is saying, that's the, that's the Messiah right there. You guys follow him now. So after that, John's arrested a few weeks later probably, a few months at the most. Uh, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, uh, saying that time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God and the person of the king is here change your mind and believe in the gospel. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, listener, and Andrew. What do we know about them based on John 1? They're already believers. Andrew found first, followed Jesus, convinced he's the Messiah, believes in him, gets his brother. He comes to faith. That was a few weeks, a few months ago. Now Jesus has told these guys, look, go back home, go back to your fishing business, but be ready to go at a moment's notice because we're going to change the world. Okay? They're already believers. I was taught this as a third grade Sunday school kid, and I love the Lord Jesus, but I was scared spitless because these guys, didn't, it, just, it reads as if somebody had never seen before walks by, interrupts from his work, and says, drop everything, follow me. That's not faith, okay? Faith always has content. These guys are following him full-time as disciples because they know who he is. They've already believed. They've already told wife and kids, we're not abandoning you. We'll be in and out, but we're going to follow him because he's called us to be his disciples. And rabbis don't do that. And plus, he's the Messiah. He's who we've been waiting for. So they're going along the Sea of Galilee. You see Simon and Andrew, who are already believers. We know that from John 1, uh, casting a net in the sea for their fishermen. And Jesus said, hey, guys, I'm back. Just like I said, we're going to start the ministry in full force. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. So it's very important you correlate the Scripture, you're going to get some wrong impressions. Have you, did you follow that? John 1, they're clearly saved by faith. Later, after John's arrested, a few weeks, a few months later, they enter full-time unique ministry, okay, as apostles. All right. Now let's move from the center of this passage, which is calling Carla Buchanan, Maxine Blystone, Brad McCoy to invest uh, in an abiding lifestyle so we have a growing, more and more substantial connection, friendship, fellowship with our Savior to the top bun and the bottom bun, which is saying, you know what, radiating, radiating out of that center, the closer we get to the Lord, the better we ought to be able to connect with Christians. Now, I love Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm a proud graduate of Theological Seminary, unless they take my degree away after I say this, but you know, 250 of us in the THM program every year, four-year program, uh, so you've got 1,000 THM students. You see over the course of um, four years of s uh, seminary that some people see it as almost a cemetery because they get so knowledgeable about Bible trivia and theological terminology, they can't get along with anybody who's not exactly like them on every jot and tittle. TBF is a tremendous laboratory to help you overcome that because this is a group of believers 
And it's not a mega church, and in Duncan it probably never will be, certainly not with the current pastor for sure. <laughs> but we're a group of believers from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds united by our faith in Christ and a desire to grow and reproduce spiritually by focusing on Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism, and world missions by being centered and abiding in Jesus Christ, okay? So guess what? We've had Calvinists here and Arminians, and I'm a proud Calvinian. That's technically called Amaraldian, but we won't go into all that. We've got uh, people who believe the rapture will take place before the tribulation, as I do, and other people who are wrong about the timing of the rapture. We've got all kinds of different people in here. <laughs> but we try to emphasize the absolute irreducible minimum, and we kind of act like we're all learning stuff as we study the Bible, including uh, the current pastor. And that's certainly true. So beware of ever becoming so much in love with Jesus or doctrine or Bible that you can't get along with other people. We do not worship the Bible here. We worship the God of the Bible. Okay? I love the Bible. Love the Bible. I bleed Bible. But I don't worship the Bible. I worship the Lord of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the core of the passage is what he said in verses 14 through 16. Forge a growing dynamic fellowship with me, not just servants but friends. And then he says, get along with other people. Now I want you to notice, look at verse 12. In verse 17, this whole subsection is framed. It's called inclusio. We use similar terminology to, bra to bracket off a, a unit of thought. Verse 12 starts the passage by saying, this is my commandment, kind of my overarching commandment, just my kind of general order for believers, that you love one another, not as you love yourself, but he ramps it way up, as I have loved you. But you see that? This is my commandment that you love one another. Look at the last verse in this larger passage, the bottom bun. Look at verse 17. This I command you that you love one another. Do those sound familiar? Say yes. They sound familiar intentionally to bracket off the unit of thought, right? So let's look at verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment that all y'all should love one another, not as you love yourself, which is a great starting place, but in light of the incarnation of Christ, as I have loved you. Now, your notes say back in 1337, but it should say back in 1334, the Lord first commanded them to love one another as he loved them. And that applies to Ken and to Jenny and to Brad today. We're supposed to love other Christians and not just those who attend Tangle Bible Fellowship, but all other believers as Christ loved us. And how did he love us? It was a giving service kind of love up to and including, and he's thinking in this context especially, of his crucifixion. So, if Jesus says this in 1334 and now verse 12, verse 17, this is not optional, okay? This isn't just elders and deacons and pastors supposed to love everybody. The rest of us can just kind of pick and choose. We got to love the unlovely. We got to get out of our clump occasionally to connect with other people. It's worth the effort, but it will take more effort to get out of your clump because you naturally gravitate toward people like you. Like really good looking guys like me, Dale, and Tommy, we tend to hang together. Okay? Because we never have bad hair days, you know? And the rest of you have got to deal with that, right? Uh, now, here's the thing. As a pastor committed to the local church, the local church is supposed to be the major setting in which this kind of agape agape is the word for love that means seek other people's highest good. Uh, where, you, know, you, you apply it everywhere, outside of the walls and outside of the boundaries of your local church, but especially in your local church. You've got to love the local church. You got you know, local church a lot of times like Noah's Ark. A lot of times it's a big, stinky, smelly mess, but it's still the best thing afloat, right? 
So you got to love it, man. Um, and, uh, but here's the thing, critical to realize, the love that the Beatles were singing about, and all you need is love, Dennis, remember that? Uh, isn't the same thing we're talking about here. He's using a very specific term, agapao is the verb, agape is the noun. It's not emotional, it's volitional. It's your will. It's a determination to seek other people's highest good consistent with God's greatest glory. Now, agape love, as we abide in Christ, that's the first fruit of the Spirit, by the way, so Paul knows about it too, right? Frees us up to serve others in our clump, outside of our clump, without expecting warm fuzzies in return. Now, warm fuzzies are greatly appreciated, okay? And I'm tempted some weeks to put a tip jar up here because I really, there should be one. But uh, all the tips are greatly appreciated, but they're not required, right? Uh, and watch this. When you're really abiding in Christ and functioning in agape, it lightens your grip on your tendency to be bitter and resentful about what you don't have or what happened to you or didn't happen to you or what she said or what he said. I've often said prayer meeting is a very dangerous place for Christians because let's say you have a job where your boss is verbally abusive and never says anything nice at all and gives you more than you can do and no matter what you do is never good enough and you come to prayer meeting and somebody like, well, Derek's his own boss, so that doesn't count. Uh, you go to a prayer meeting and somebody uh, says, hey, before we have prayer requests, can I share a praise? No, we don't want that. Get that. Now, of course, yeah, please, please. I just want to say I've got the greatest boss in the world. I just love my boss. Every day he tells me how great I am, and he always helps me, and he, he's just the most wonderful boss in the world. Now, you know what? When I hear that, I think, that's great. I'm, I'm happy for you. Thank you for sharing that. That's a praise. But the person who's got the opposite situation is sitting in prayer meeting, and you know what their request is? That their boss would loosen up a little bit. That, that person with the crummy boss is going to be awfully tempted to do something when Pollyanna over here is talking about how great her job is. What, what are you going to be tempted to do? To resent that or say, hey, Lord, what am I, chop liver? Why does she get a good boss and I have a terrible boss? I mean, that's the tendency, okay? So you got to, so prayer meeting is a very dangerous place unless you're operating in agape. If you're operating in agape, you rejoice with those who rejoice even as you weep with those who weep over your situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that, that, that comparison thing can really ruin you. And if you consider the love as emotional, you're not going to feel emotionally great about the fact you've got a horrible boss in light of her great boss. But with agape, you can literally empathize with her. You can rejoice with her even as you continue to pray that your situation gets better or changes. And by the way, get a new job, you know? That's what I would do. That's just me. Verse 13. And, and, and when he says that, love one another as I loved you, and he's, he, they're on their way now to Gethsemane. So guess what, Janet? What's he primarily thinking about? He's thinking about the crucifixion, right? Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sin kind of thing. So he's thinking about that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you want to see what love looks like? Just keep your eyes open tomorrow afternoon. You'll see it. That's kind of what he's saying in effect or thinking. By the way, greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Now, we don't ask you to, you know, go in front of a firing squad around here, but one reason we list all these folks here in the back of the bulletin is for prayer, but also it's kind of nice if uh, you like little kids. I mean, just recently Eric and Ray have plugged in, and I, I know that Steve and Janice and Tom and Angie are very happy that Eric and uh, 
and uh, Ray have plugged in to teach junior church. Because you know what? You know how this works? The more people who volunteer, watch this. I'm not a math teacher. The more people volunteer, the less anybody has to do. Right? Is that a good thing? And you get the blessing of doing it. You know? So uh, if you're wondering, how do I fit in? You know, uh, I'd start here and look. And maybe you've got a clump that Gene's part of. Or maybe you're just good with kids or you like to cook. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Debbie Corbin would love it if you say, hey, next time you're going to do Meals on Wheels, count me in. I can whip up anything with goulash and some mustard and, you know, 25 minutes, and everybody loves it, except for Pastor Brad. He's kind of weird, okay? <laughs> uh, now, drop down to verse 17. Why are we jumping from verse 11 and 12 down to 17? Because of the structure of the passage. We're going from the top bun to the bottom bun. The Lord just repeats himself for emphasis. I'm convinced the longer I teach and preach that repetition is the mother of retention, so it's really important you repeat it. Uh, parallel passage, Mark 10, 43 through 45, Jesus says, whoever, put your name in the blank, if you, if you as a Christian want to become really spiritually great, you should willingly become a servant. And whoever wishes to be first spiritually, top level spiritually, uh, a real friend of Jesus, capital F friend among you, shall willingly be servant of all. For the Son of Man is not going to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So take this to heart. Boom. You know, a substantial overlap with Christ is achievable not just by missionaries and pastors, but all of us as we abide in Christ and obey his commandments. And the commandment he's emphasizing here is to love, which means to willingly serve other believers. Uh, this isn't unique to the teachings of the Gospels. It's all over the Scripture. I like Galatians 6.10. It says something very consistent with this. Paul says, so then while we have the opportunity, we can have above-ground church and not get arrested. You can't do that in Sudan. Let us do good to all people. Now, by the way, King James is going to say men, but that word uh, anthropos just means people. It's not male-specific. And especially to who? Those who are of the household of faith. When he says love one another, he's not saying don't love unbelievers, but he's saying concentrate your love in the household of faith. That's really important. Now, we've got an acronym for the next edition of the newsletter. What's, uh, I know the military guys know what SOP stands for. What does BSOP stand for? BSOP? Yeah, SOP is Standard Operating Procedure. B stands for Bible, right? The biblical standard operating procedure, not just for Homer because he's an elder, not just for David Demerson because he's a deacon, not just for me because I'm a pastor, but for all believers is for us to forge a growing, dynamic fellowship, friendship with Christ and, his, and in his names with other people. Now watch this. Not every other Christian is going to be your best friend. That's not realistic. It doesn't happen, okay? Uh, but we ought to be a friend to anyone of the faith. When you, when you end up in Jordan, anybody who's a believer is your friend because 98% of them aren't and some of them are violent about it, right? So you see that instant clumping among all the students at Jordan Evangelical Seminary just because we're in a war footing over there. In America, not so much yet, but it could be coming, right? Um, you know, I admit I'm biased, but in my mind, TBF is really a good kind of uh, spiritual crock pot for us to do this because we do have different denominational backgrounds and we've got like 18 different translations, you know, sitting on your lap or on your phone and it's all good. And you might translate agape in certain contexts as just 
putting up with each other. To really make this work, and I'm just about to conclude, uh, you got to use what I call the baptism technique. When we baptize in the baptism tank, you know, I always tell people to put your uh, arms in front of your chest um, and then hold your nose. And that does a couple things for me. Now, watch this. When people fold their arms and hold their, hold their nose when we're going to baptize, well, it does two things, Clay. Number one, it keeps water from going up their nose, which is important. And it gives me something to hold on to, right? But to, to show agape in a local church where people aren't going to think your ideas on everything are perfect or ideal even, like color of the carpet, big theological issues like that, uh, you've got to use what I call the baptism technique. How do I baptize people? Hold your nose and you lean way over backward. That's how you get along with other people. That's the secret to a lasting marriage. Sometimes you've got to hold your nose and lean way over backwards, especially if you're married to somebody like me, right? So uh, I think TBF is a great crock pot for us to do that. And uh, as I said last uh, Sunday, I think the best is yet to come. So uh, just be aware, though, as I, as I do close, I know quick thinkers like Jack Smith and uh, Ron Miller will probably say something like, well, of course, TBF is an especially great spiritual crock pot, but only because for the past 26 years we've had a pastor who's a spiritual crack pot. Now, if they say that, <laughs> that's a lack of phileo, and that's a whole different subject. Okay. Yeah, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you call us into a dynamic, growing, relational connection with the creator of the universe, our Savior, and coming uh, Lord of planet Earth during the millennium, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, why would a pipsqueak like me in a little town, a little church, be given that kind of entree to the Lord of glory? As a friend, we're so thankful, Lord, you saved us from our sin through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. You've given us eternal life. You've made us members of the family. And now you want us to be intimates, friends, best friends, as it were, with our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, for some, that's a radically new concept. For a lot of us, it's something we depend on <laughs> daily. And I pray that we'd be excited about the possibility and realize it's not about us getting our way or being in charge of everything or organizing everything so it pleases us to the nth degree. It's about us serving and giving uh, to other people in the power and motivated by abiding in Christ. So help us to see that and rejoice in just what a wonderful opportunity it truly is. Uh, thank you, Father, for each one who is here this morning. If there's anyone here this morning who's not received, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, open their hearts and their eyes to see He's all they need for salvation, that at our worst, we break our own standards, not much less yours. Uh, and we can't fix it by putting a Band-Aid of good works on it. But we need a Savior from out of this world. And He's come. And He's coming back. And I pray that you would open eyes to see and believe and receive the free gift of eternal life through faith in Christ. For the rest of us, help us to be excited about the challenge and the opportunity to abide in Christ moment by moment. And not just at a church service where it's fairly easy maybe, but out in the real world on Monday morning or on the uh, Kowtung uh, football field this afternoon. Uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.